Hey everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Working with Humans. Uh, my name is Matt Phelan, and I'm here with my guest, Alex Edmonds. Alex, are you here? Yes, I am. Yeah. I was my, that was my really bad prompt to get you to say your own name, but I obviously messed that up. <laughs> um, Alex, um, how are you doing today? Fine, thanks. Did you want to start that again? No, that's totally cool. We're going to go all warts and all, and just cut through if 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 and, and also your side if dogs uh cats anyone comes into your room it's not a problem um alex how are you today i'm good thank you matt yeah good and um alex i'm just guests um by reading out your uh bio which is um so alex edmonds professor of finance at london business school um but you've also um worked at Mercer School Memorial Professor of Business and before that we've got Member Responsible Investment Advisory Committee at Royal London Asset Management. That's me doing a really bad job of reading your LinkedIn profile. Um, could you introduce um, yourself to our, to our listeners? Yeah, I'm a professor of finance at London Business School, and what I do is I work in responsible business, so how business can serve wider society. And I try rigorous academic research, but also apply this to real-world problems. And I've done that most recently in a book called Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Brilliant. Thanks, Alex. Um, and for those listening, um, this episode, um, we're talking about workplace happiness. But before we get into that, Alex, I'd like to ask you what makes you happy? It's uh, used it's ed- to educate people, so to provide people with information. And so that could be students. So I teach finance. But in addition to finance, I also try to teach students how to make a successful start to their career, how to pursue a career that's meaningful and purposeful. And also I try to teach them softer skills such as public speaking or time management or the importance of physical and mental well-being. But also, I like to educate and provide information to practitioners. So this is why um, I spend quite a lot of time with practitioners and policymakers, in particular those who are interested in responsible business, by using rigorous evidence to guide practice. So something like responsibility is quite tempting to shoot from the hip and say what sounds good, but actually there's a lot of evidence and research which often finds that what works in practice might be counterintuitive and might be different from what might, one might think just based on intuition. Yeah, re- really useful. Do you, um, it's a non-planned question, but do you believe that intuition is still important? Well, I think intuition is important, but I think intuition must be uh, uh, balanced with with scientific research. And that's the goal of research. For example, intuition would suggest that you shouldn't give water to a baby with diarrhea because it would just flow out the other side. But research and evidence finds the opposite. You do need to give water to somebody with diarrhea because they're dehydrating. So, yes, there is a role for intuition. And clearly, there are certain things which, uh, which you can't analyze scientifically. So if people were to be asked, why do they love their wife or husband? Right? That's based on intuition rather than an analysis of their career prospects or something. Yeah. But for the, for the factors which um, can be studied with research and evidence, I think we should use that. Yeah. That's a really good description of it, Alex. Um, Next question up. uh, Please tell us about your research into workplace happiness. Thanks, Matt. So what I wanted to look at is are companies that treat their workers better, do they do better in terms of long-term financial performance? And you might think, well, the answer to that is obvious, right? Aren't companies going to do better if their workers are happier? 
but it's not obvious because making your workers happier is costly. So it costs to pay higher wages, to provide better working conditions and so forth. And indeed, finance people within a company are typically the enemy of treating workers better because it's seen to be a cost to the bottom line. So I wanted to do what I wanted to do is to see whether this is actually supportive of profit. So in order to do that, I need a data source on workplace happiness. And I took the list of the 100 best companies to work for in America. So why did I choose that list? Um, There were two good reasons for it. First, it was available from 1984. So I had tons of data. And importantly, that data included things like the crash of the internet bubble and the financial crisis. And that's important because often people think that workplace happiness is only important in good times. And in bad times, we should cut it because it's not essential. And the second reason why I looked at it is it doesn't just look at quantitative factors like pay and benefits, but qualitative factors such as trust in management and uh, pride in your job and camaraderie with your colleagues. And so what I want to do is to study whether companies on that list did better. Now, there's a lot of gory detail that I won't bore you with, but I need to be rigorous. We love love detail detail on here, Alex. Please bore us. Okay, I will do. Thank you. So, well, what, what you want to do is to see whether you've got correlation or causation. For example, Google was on this list um, and Google's done really well. But do we know that that's due to employee satisfaction? It could just be because the tech industry happened to do well. So for every company on the list, I have to control for what industry you're in for your recent performance, for your size and so forth to try to strip out employee satisfaction. And then I need to do further tests to rule out, is it employee satisfaction that causes better financial performance? Or is it the firm first needs to be performing well, and then it can spend money on employee satisfaction? So after all that, what did I find? What's the bottom line result, which is important for for practitioners, is that over a 28-year period, the best companies to work for in America delivered stock returns that beat their peers by 23 to 3.8% per year. So that's 89 to 184% cumulative. And so I think that's really important. That fundamentally changes the way that people should think about their workers, not as a cost center, but as a fundamental asset, which is important to the long run growth of the firm. So Alex, that that piece of research has is, is, is become really well, well known now. And there's a lots of us that... Um, that have found it really useful but i just want to get into you as a human being a little bit there what is it that made you want to go and do that piece of research it was the the view that uh, many people claim right people are our greatest asset money companies say that but i wanted to think uh, it do they actually mean it because obviously companies can say something for good public relations so i wanted yeah. to test does it make sense for companies to actually prioritize their workers as a ceo level issue yeah rather than just an issue to be delegated to the HR director. And what's interesting is that I come to this as a professor of finance. Now, often finance, as I mentioned, is the enemy of workplace happiness because they think it's just a waste of money. But I wanted to show that even sort of a hard-hearted finance person can recognize the importance of employee happiness. So that's why I think in particular it's important for me as somebody who's mainly based on, on, on numbers to show that something which is often considered as, as fluffy as, as um, employee happiness is something which is fundamental. That's really useful. I think I'm going to rebrand this episode as finance and happiness to see if we can get loads of CFOs on listening to it. 
Yeah, I, well, I, th- well, I think that's important because I, I don't want to just my research to be preaching to the converted. Obviously, HR people already know what my research shows, but I think it's the finance people and investors as well who might normally look at short-term profits who should be aware of these findings. Were you um, in this research and um, any of the related research? Was there anything that you that really surprised you that you found? Yeah, so one thing that surprised me was how consistent the effect was across industries. So before I did the research, I thought, well, maybe I would find that happiness matters in, say, pharmaceuticals or tech. So those are where you're hiring very skilled employees and you need a lot of creativity. I thought that other industries, such as retail, where employees tend to be um, less paid and so they're not seen to be as important for firm value, as physical assets like machineries and shops. I thought that wouldn't matter so much. But actually what was interesting was that consistently across industries, employee happiness matters. And I think that's, that's important because there are some CEOs who will say, yeah, I should take care of my scientists um, or my, my, my tech engineers, but I don't want to take care of people who uh, perform what they would see as more routine tasks. But I think the phrase sort of, we're in this one together, that's often sort of seen to be hackneyed and cliched. But I think what it was highlighting was that all employees within the firm matter. It's not that there's some important who are important and then there's others that you can just toss aside. Yeah, we, ha- we have a, a stat to sum that up, which we, we always say 100% of employees are human beings. Yeah, and I think that just captures it really well. And, and that, that is not just a nice phrase. It's something that I think is, can be backed up by research. Yeah. Um, so moving forward, um, you, the, the most recent thing you've written about is uh, Grow the Pie. Can you, wh- why did you write that? What, what made you get onto that subject? Thanks. So it was based in part on the employee satisfaction study that I mentioned, but I wanted to broaden it out much more generally to other things that companies can do to serve society. So so why is it called grow the pie? Well, what is the pie? I view the value that a company creates as being represented by a pie, and that pie can be distributed to either investors in the form of profits or society in the form of wages to workers or taxes to the government or better products to customers. And often managers think that the way in which they will maximize profits is by increasing their slice of the pie by decreasing everybody else's slice. So they implicitly have this idea that the pie is fixed. And so the only way to make me better off is to make you worse off, which involves paying workers less and so forth. So why I call it grow the pie is that, well, actually, when you treat stakeholders better by investing in workplace happiness, as I mentioned, but other things as well, by reducing your carbon footprint or investing a lot in customer welfare, you're not just donating slices of pie to them, you're growing the pie and therefore making shareholders better off. So this speaks into the current debate that we have about business and society and whether companies should serve a purpose. And often people think that purpose is fluffy and at the expense of a bottom line. But what I want to show is that it's supportive of long-term profit. And then the second thing was beyond this idea, right, that we want to serve society or we want to make workers happy, was an actual roadmap to how to do this. So what my earlier study showed was that it matters but not how to do it. It's just like saying a football to a football team, try to score more goals in order to win. Right, that's not very useful. Well, what is the strategy that you're going to use to try to score more goals? And so what I want to do is to move it from food for thought into a plan of action 
what are the things that a company should try to go into in order to try to increase workplace happiness. Brilliant. And can you give us a, a snapshot of the sort of your sort of two, two or three top tips that there would be on that roadmap? Sure. Well, let me actually just just take take one, and so that I can go into it in, in detail, yeah. is is just to change the perception that we have of workers. So the traditional view is that workers are inherently lazy, and therefore the goal of a manager is to make them work as hard as possible. So what was perhaps the one of the most famous inventions in the 20th century was the assembly line from Henry Ford. So why was that so successful? it forced workers to keep up with the pace of production. They had to move the cogs or whatever as fast as the assembly line. And you might think, well, that, that was in 1920. Is that relevant to 2020? Well, perhaps it is. So my first job was I worked uh, in an investment bank um, after university. And there was one day that the vice president caught me laughing. And he said, Alex, uh, you shouldn't laugh when you're in the office. And I asked him why. And he said, well, if you're too happy, my boss, the managing director, will think I'm not a good manager because I'm not working you hard enough. <laughs> so that might oh, seem a little tongue in cheek, but, but, yeah. it, but it is the perception that like a great manager is one that really works you hard as possible. Right? For yeah. a football manager, why was Sir Alex Ferguson so famous? Was the players would come off the pitch absolutely having given everything? But I think one of the big tips is to recognise that actually workers are, are self-motivated, right? If you are to leave them to do things for themselves, as we've had to do in the pandemic because people are working from home, they're not going to be slacking. They will, are, they're, they're naturally driven to contribute and to challenge themselves. So the importance of empowerment and viewing workers as active voluntary contributors to the firm, rather than people who need to be micromanaged and given a lot of instructions. Yeah. I think, well, while it might sound obvious to sort of the HR people who are listening, it's not obvious often to the finance people who think that employees are just another resource that you must squeeze as much effort out as possible. Yeah, I, I love that description, Alex. Um, and I want to, I've just invented a question which I didn't pre-tell you about, but going back to your writing about helping and educating other people, you, you go back to your background in finance, right? You speak very confidently about data, running control, tests, causation, et cetera, et cetera. If we've got some people on here that, that have been put off of numbers and data at school because of math, their, their maths and et cetera, et cetera, but they want to understand data better to, 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 to help people, have you got any advice for people really starting out in the early stages of their career and on how they can start getting into this type of stuff? Yes, thanks. Thanks, Matt, for asking that, because that's something that I, I'm particularly passionate about. And so what I do now is I spend quite a lot of my time translating these very complex technical concepts into simple language. So that was one of the motivations for, for writing the book was to take the existing complicated research which is written for an academic audience because it needs to be rigorous, and then translating that into simple principles. Uh, but beyond that, like not everybody's able to afford to, to buy a book. So what I've done is um, the, the, the um, Mercer School Memorial Professor position that you mentioned earlier, that is with Gresham College. So Gresham College is an unusual university. You can't take any degrees there. All it does is it offers free public lectures, Brilliant. just like Michael Faraday used to give on science. So I gave a series of lectures called How Business Can Better Serve Society. And all of those are available for free. They're all pitched to the general audience, including those without a um, financial background. Um, the one I did this year was called 
business skills for the 21st century on things like time management and public speaking. Brilliant. My one next year is going to be called the psychology of finance. So hopefully those resources will help. And where can we get hold of those, Alex? So, so if you just go to either the Gresham College website or my own website, alexedmonds.com, where I've posted all of those free lectures there. In addition to the actual lectures, I've posted my lecture notes. So for those who are unable to sort of sit through the entire lecture and you just want the notes, so they're there as well. So I hope that will be a good resource to, to many listeners. Really useful, Alex. Right, I'm going to put you in a time machine now. You've influenced uh, 20 people. We've gone forward into the future. Um, they're, they're now, one of them's um, become a HR director. One of them has become a finance director. They're both sitting on, a, on, on, the, on the board of a FTSE 100 company. Um, how can HR and finance work better together at board level? I think it's to recognise that either each one is not the enemy of the other, right? So we often have HR and finance thinking that they are, again, splitting a fixed pie. So anything that goes into the HR budget is going to come out of the finance budget and, and therefore finance might try to resist um, calls to invest more in workers. So it's to recognise that they are part of the same organisation and anything that we do, many things that we do to improve HR will actually grow the pie and ultimately benefit finance, at least in the long term. Yeah. So I think finance should recognise that HR is not a cost centre. But I think on the flip side, right, HR should also recognise that finance is not the enemy. So sometimes people think, well, good HR will be preserving full employment, making sure no employees get fired or not. But again, that I think is, is a little bit narrow because a company does need to remain commercially viable, right? Because yeah. if, a, if they forget about finance, then you're going to go under and there's not going to be any jobs for anybody. So let's take Airbnb, for example. Right? They have recognized that unfortunately after the pandemic, the travel sector is going to be um, smaller and therefore permanently they will need to have fewer staff. So what they did is they took the very sad and difficult decision to let go of many workers, but that was a commercially necessary decision because if not, Airbnb might not be sustainable. Yeah. But then what did they do? Is they made sure they did it in a humane way, so giving a lot of severance pay and um, guaranteeing their healthcare benefits. So that was, I think, a great decision which came from both HR and finance. So the financial aspect meant, yes, we do need to take this tough decision to remain viable. But then the HR said, let's take this tough decision in the most humane way possible. Yeah, uh, that's a really good, really good point, Alex. And um, just moving forward, because we've only got 60 seconds to go. Um, at the Happiness Index, we're, we're obsessed with uncovering more data like your data and research to, to help people visualize this stuff. What, what's missing at the moment? What do we need to see more data on, Alex? So what, what I looked at in my data set was um, just the best companies to work for. So aggregate levels of employee satisfaction. But I think the disaggregated uh, measures might matter. So what is it that makes um, people more happy? Is it more trust in management? Is it camaraderie with your colleagues? So something at the more sort of granular level is important because many of the measures that we have out there are more how happy are workers in general rather than the individual components. So I think that matters because then if you're an HR director or a CEO wanting to influence happiness, what are the specific levers that you want to try to move? Yeah, Alex, um, time is up. This has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Anyone who's listening, I highly recommend you do a bit of Googling around Alex's work and spend a bit of time reading it up because it's fantastic. Um, and Alex, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule for joining us today. 
Great. Thanks so much, Matt. It was really great to, to be interviewed. Thank you for your interest in my work. Thanks, Alex. Cheers.